Section 35 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 5 The Popish Terror and the Triumph of the Court. Part 6. On March 21, 1681, began a notable week in the history of Parliament. The Lords were in the Geometry School, the Commons in Convocation House the king took up his residence at christ church he opened the session with by far the best speech he had ever delivered somewhat minatory but clear dignified reasonable and unmistakable it had been carefully considered and it was printed and published in london before it was in the hands of the members at oxford he had parted he said with the last parliament because i who will never use arbitrary government myself am resolved not to suffer it in others by his calling them together so soon they could see that no irregularities in parliament should make him out of love with them he again recommended them to go on with the plot and with the trial of the lords in the tower then came the passage for which the houses were waiting was charles at last going to surrender what i have formally and so often declared touching the succession i cannot depart from the succession must be inviolate but if means can be found that in the case of a popish succession the administration of the government may remain in protestant hands i shall be ready to hearken to any such expedient it was understood that charles was willing that after his death the duke should be king only in name the kingdom being governed by a protector or the privy council the prince of orange through his wife would be the protector the temper of the commons was shown in their first action declaring themselves not inclinable to changes they elected as speaker william williams who had held the same position in the last house a lawyer of competent learning but of a fiery and vicious temper and subservient to that party and pliant to them as a spaniel dog they probably thought and hoped that the king would raise preliminary difficulties on an appointment so aggressive but he shrewdly took it as a matter of course and advised them to get on with business on the twenty fourth before formal discussion was begun shaftesbury made a singularly ill-advised attempt to shake charles's resolution in a conversation in the house of lords he pressed the king to declare monmouth his successor charles replied that nothing should make him do a thing so contrary to law shaftesbury rejoined that if he would leave it to himself and his friends they would see to it that the law was on his side charles closed the conversation thus my lord let there be no self-delusion i will never yield and will not let myself be intimidated i have law and reason on my side good men will be with me there is the church pointing to the bishops which will remain united with me believe me my lord we shall not be divided on saturday march twenty sixth the discussion took place upon charles's expedient it was purely academic for the commons as before meant the exclusion of james and nothing less while it can scarcely be doubted that the expedient had been put forward by the king in order that its certain rejection 
might place him in a stronger position. God be praised, wrote one of the court who dreaded expedients more than the bill. God has blinded them in so great a measure that they would have all or nothing. The scheme received scant courtesy. Birch, who had a taste for imagery, declared that it was absurd to hope that you could keep water cold in a hot pot, while Harbord improved upon this by saying that expedients deserve the same treatment as cucumber, dress it, and then throw it away. A resolution was carried to exclude James, but there is little doubt that even more drastic designs had been formed among the Whig leaders, designs which justified the statement that the question was not now whether the Duke should succeed or not, but whether it should be monarchy or a commonwealth. Charles learned that it was intended to revive a proposal of the previous Parliament, which would accomplish a complete transference of both the military and civil powers to persons whom the Whigs could trust, and would establish Parliament in continuous session. The preservation of his own prerogative and the preservation of the succession now formed one cause. The crisis was undoubtedly serious. The manner in which Charles met it was not exactly Cromwellian, but it served. As so often was the case, genial trickery formed the basis of his method. On Sunday he busied himself in taking measures to meet the complaint of the commons that their quarters were too narrow, and that evening he expressed his satisfaction at having been able to arrange for their better comfort. A great show was made of putting the theatre in readiness for their occupation on the following Tuesday. But in the afternoon, he had held a cabinet council at Merton in the Lord Chancellor's lodgings, where there was not one false or babbling member. During the night, his coaches were quietly sent a stage out of Oxford to await his coming with a guard of horse. Early on Monday morning, he went to the Lord's apparently now in the hall of Christ Church. A closed sedan chair which followed contained his official robes. Hastily putting them on and preventing a hint of his intention from reaching the commons, by holding one of the peers who evidently had his suspicions, in conversation to the last moment, he placed himself on the throne, and without giving the lords time for their customary robing, ordered the lower house to be summoned. He was evidently enjoying himself thoroughly while he sat waiting their arrival. Noticing Thomas Bruce come in by the door next to the canopy, he gave him a smile of peculiar graciousness, and Bruce, who describes the scene which follows, records that he never saw him look so cheerful. Presently the commons arrived. The door was extremely narrow, and there were three steps from it down into the body of the hall. This prolonged the entry for many minutes. At length all were in, and there they stood crowded together in the greatest discomfort, while the speaker forced his way to the bar with Russell and Cavendish, representatives of the two greatest Whig families, on his right and left respectively. The noise resulting from the uneasiness of the throng was such that it was not until the sergeant-at-arms had thrice commanded silence in the king's name that Charles could put the finishing touch to this carefully prepared comedy. He knew that they had come in the belief that under the pressure of his necessities he was about to announce his surrender. Gentlemen, he said, 
that all the world may see to what a point we are come, that we are not likely to have a good end when the divisions at the beginning are such. Therefore, my Lord Chancellor, do as I have commanded you. Finch hereupon declared the Parliament dissolved, and Charles at once left the throne. As the baffled crowd crushed up the three steps and out at the narrow door, Bruce was witness of their dreadful faces and loud sighs. He then joined the king in the disrobing chamber, and Charles, with a face radiant with satisfaction, his peculiarly bright black eyes gleaming with amusement, touched him on the shoulder with the remark that it was better to have one king than five hundred. To avoid suspicion, which might have caused inconvenient attentions, the king dined or rather breakfasted in public and with music as usual. But he speedily rose from the table, left the room, and went privately down some back stairs. The matter would not be complete without these back stairs, to where Sir Edmund Seymour's coach was standing ready. He at once drove off unattended by any royal guards or footmen to the stage where his own coach was waiting, and reached Windsor that night. At last, then, Charles was free. He had won his final victory over Parliament, and he had saved the succession intact. But if he were free on one side, he was fettered as he never had yet been on the other. He was helpless for foreign action, for he could not live without the French grants. So completely was he bound to Louis, that William, who came over in July to secure the renewed support of England, was forbidden by Charles to attend the Lord Mayor's banquet, lest the opportunity should be taken for a popular demonstration against France. Charles, indeed, went through the form of remonstrating with his cousin upon his aggressions in Europe and upon the persecution which was now beginning to fall upon the Huguenots. But the first protest was but a form, while the second, came with little force from the man who had allowed scores of Catholics to be done to death under the most shameless travesties of justice, and had thus become, in no small degree, the author of the very cruelties which he affected to deplore. That this is no exaggeration is shown by the order to Barillon to send to Louis a statement as to the treatment of Catholics in England that being the model designed for what treatment the English Protestants shall find here. Louis gave way to Charles, from the policy of making his path easier, just as much as he felt disposed to give way, and no more. The most rigid economy barely sufficed to carry on the government. The old story went on of unpaid public servants, of fortifications and ships in decay, of pensions in arrear no money could be found to pay the interest on a new loan. Even Louise de Querouaille received no more than twenty thousand pounds this year, while the state of destitution to which poor Nelly Gwynne was reduced can be dimly imagined. There was another illustrious pensioner whose sufferings began at once. Now that Parliament had disappeared, Charles could give practical form to his opinion of the witnesses to the plot. Not only was Titus Oates degraded from Dr. Oates to Mr. Titus, but his blood money fell straightway from ten pounds a week to two pounds, and after September ceased altogether. The effect of Charles's coup de théâtre upon home relations was more immediate and more drastic than he could have hoped. 
it was with the whigs as it has been well said as if a gust of wind had suddenly scattered the leaves from a tree the basis of constitutional action was cut from the feet of the exclusionists and the reaction which had long been gaining force could now make itself felt the tension had been severe and prolonged moderate men had been alienated by the excessive violence of the whigs the popish terror was practically extinct and people stood ashamed at their own folly the well-to-do classes dreaded another civil war and another commonwealth with government by major generals while the opposition to the idea of the monmouth succession had grown day by day charles took the tide on the flood his clever declaration on april eighth in which he recounted the evil doings of the parliament for many years and his own manifold virtues was however scarcely needed and the anonymous reply a just and modest vindication of the proceedings of the last two parliaments fell absolutely flat an indecent courting and magnifying of james began addresses couched in the most slavish language in which for once cambridge outstripped oxford poured in during the summer from end to end of the country cambridge assured the king that he reigned by a fundamental hereditary right of succession which no religion no law no fault can alter or diminish while the following effusion from the town of wickham may be quoted as a type of the country addresses the addressers speak of the late defeated politicians disappointed of their dark designments by your majesty's profound wisdom and divine prevision and protest that we have always detested and rejected them together with their now exploded scanty and forsaken abettors we have ever inserted our loyal selves among the resolute grave and deliberate persons and we do most highly applaud the stout fidelios the strenuous brisk and valiant youth of this your most undiluted nation we therefore your majesty's most dutiful and most devoted subjects entirely profess that we will to the utmost stress of our sinews to the latest gasp of our lives and the last solitary might in our coffers adhere to your majesty many have outstripped us on the wing but none shall exceed us in their wishes we envy much their more early apply but none shall ever appear more faithful god preserve your majesty from all rebellious machinations amen hyde put the matter with coarse incisiveness the petitioners he said spit in the king's face the addressers in the king's mouth probably charles never enjoyed a newmarket visit more than he did in that september the secretary lord conway who had succeeded sunderland was in attendance but unless he was much maligned he was drunk during much of the time and the king was not therefore troubled with business nelly gwynne was there brimming over with effrontery alderman white of oxford a person of eminent respectability was much scandalized while walking with charles in the fields at meeting that indiscreet lady and nelly called to the king charles i hope i shall have your company at night shall i not End of section 35